This podcast revisits the details of the Bali bombings and contains first-hand accounts from survivors and medical staff. As a result, it contains some confronting content, including graphic descriptions of the bombings, the devastation caused, and mentions of mental health issues and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If hearing this episode is distressing for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. much about four or five hours after we arrived a terrorist attack on the Sari club happened. There was 11 of us there and five of us ended up surviving and six died. We knew very early on that we had to action the disaster plan. The life that we thought we were having just went bang, that's it. I think it was a test, a test of strength a test of determination and a test of courage. 20 years ago, on the 12th of October 2002, Bali was struck by a terror attack. Bombs ripped through the popular nightlife district Kuta. 202 people would die, including children. The victims came from 21 different countries. Germany, Britain, New Zealand, all corners of the globe. But by far the biggest death toll was suffered by Australia, with 88 lives lost. I flew to Bali the next day to cover the atrocity for Network 10 Australia. And this is when I first met the survivors. Hi, I'm Ali Donaldson. As a journalist, I know I have this incredible privilege. I see people at the pointy end of life sometimes battling the most despicable lows, but I'm always struck by the bittersweet, when the very worst in some draws out the very best in others, and those who rally to help victims survive physically and emotionally. Many of those caught up in the terror attack have faced fresh challenges. When the Bali bombings happened, few people had their own mobile phones. The emergence of social media has seen the onslaught of trolling And I was shocked to hear some even had strangers telling them to get over it. So 20 years on, you may ask, why should we revisit this? I wanted to know, how did they survive the unthinkable? And when we all caught up again, even I was shocked. The twists in the paths their lives took, well, some were nothing short of astounding. The shockwaves from the bombs that night were felt across continents and through time far beyond the victims themselves. This is Shockwaves, the Bali bombings. <laughs> Every October, a sporting pilgrimage occurs. Teams of Australian footy players flock to Bali for end-of-season trips. Joining thousands of holidaymakers from all over the world, family groups, groups of friends. There's warm weather, warmer people. It's an island paradise. 20 years ago, Simon Quayle was on his way there too, celebrating a great first season coaching Perth's Kingsley Cats. We made the grand final that year, so it was the first time that the team had played in finals. And so from that perspective, it was was awesome. Our reserves team won the grand final. 
We left for a trip, a footy trip to Bali. Eric DeHart is also on his way from Sydney with his team, the Coogee Dolphins. Looking forward to sort of like just a week of fun and laughter. Both Simon and Eric played a fatherly role in their teams. They're the older ones, wrangling together a bunch of younger players, ensuring they didn't party too hard. And trying to also guide those young fellas that a lot of them hadn't been on a plane before. So it was their first trip out of Australia. And so they were, you can imagine they were excited. They wanted to, you know, do a lot of pre-drinking. I knew the way that the airlines, particularly on Bali, worked in those days. And if you drunk too much or too loud, you were booted off. Both teams fly in late Saturday afternoon. They get to their hotels, throw their bags in the room. The sun's just starting to dip and it's time to get the party going. That night, they'd head to the Sari Club. And the thing to know about the Sari Club is that it was the tourist bar to go to. We went and grabbed the front row of the, the Sari Club so we could check everyone coming in and out. Just had four or five tables and we're just sitting there laughing. And being Saturday night, within a few hours, the popular club in Kuta was packed. The dance floor was... Uh, really pumping at that time. I remember I was just standing, still probably being the the coach or the parent, just overview and looking where everyone was, making sure that, you know, there was no one alone in Bali and just everyone enjoying themselves and looking around. And I remember watching a couple, this guy, the South Australian guy, and he's walking around, big dude, uh, got no shirt on, just dancing like he's, you know, Michael Jackson and all the girls were just clinging off him. Uh, And I'm watching that and I'm laughing. It's almost 11pm, and what many don't realise is directly across the road, at a smaller venue, Paddy's Bar, a suicide bomber has just walked in and blown himself up. Eric was a block away on his way back from the team hotel. He'd just walked a mate back who'd had a bit too much to drink. It was a move that would save both their lives. Now, I'm not a big drinker. Well, I'm not a drinker at all, so I wasn't in a hurry to get back to the Surrey Club, but I knew it was too bloody warm for me to go to bed and, and go back and sleep. So I just turned around and started ambling, making my way back down Poppy's Lane, just ducking into all the, you know, the music stores. All of a sudden, there's this girl running past me screaming and in a, in a kind of panic. And then other people started running and then the big bomb went off. Islamist militants had packed a white van with 14 filing cabinets full of explosives, parked it outside the Sari Club and blew it up. Then all of a sudden this big orange cloud erupted in the sky and I've just gone, oh, what's that? This is the carnage. Guys, this is horrendous. I've never seen anything like it. It's huge, it's scary. I, I didn't know. I thought originally it must have been a gas main or something like that. I wasn't thinking a bomb. I wasn't expecting a bomb. And I just didn't know. I just didn't know that something bad had happened. People are burnt everywhere. There's an LPG container. There's people dead. There's everything. And then people are running down. They're running down. Some people um, are just got sheer terror in their faces and they're not seeing anything. They've just got complete tunnel vision and they're looking straight down where they're going. Other people are coming around, got blood hanging off them. As more people come down, they've got clothes hanging off them. 
um, bleeding quite severely, and I was just going, oh my God. And my immediate thoughts then were for the boys, I've got to go back and find out what's happened. When the bomb explodes, the Coogee Dolphins are inside the Sari Club, as are Simon and his team, the Kingsley Cats, along with hundreds of others. There was a loud, super loud noise. It was that plus a combination of all lights around and, and our pure, pure darkness. It's like someone's, you get your hands, you put your hands over your eyes, you put another set over your eyes and that's the darkness that, that happened probably, it's, I mean, it felt a long time, but it probably was only for, you know, three or four minutes or two or three minutes, whatever that time is. And that was really eerie. And to add to it, pure silence, not even a, a nothing. If a, an ant walked past, you'd probably hear it. Many in the club suffered burst eardrums. As Simon's senses slowly return, he can make out something pale on the ground. And it was one of our footy guys, so his name was Cal, so I grabbed him up. There was rubble and people and parts of people everywhere. You could, it wasn't so much the sight, it was the feel underneath your feet uh, that you could see it all, I mean, feel it all. And uh, grabbed Cal, looked at him, pulled him up, said, mate, and we're out of here. And he said, I can't go anywhere. I said, why? And he said, I can't find my other phone. <laughs> so his reaction was getting stuff in order and making sure, and he, I said, stuff that, mate. I just felt instantly that we had to get out of there. Uh, there's none of this mucking around getting there. And I, yeah, just it just felt I had to start doing something for, wasn't so much me, because I didn't actually think about me. It was more about, at this point, Cal. Simon and Cal would have to fight to get out, fight to survive. All of a sudden, they pull Cal up. You look around. Again, it's dark, but your eyes have adjusted, so it's not as dark anymore. And you, yeah, your eyes have adjusted, and you can see people everywhere, absolutely everywhere. So I pulled him up. Destruction everywhere panic all around us, we can we can hear it and see it. This tunnel sort of opened up. There was a tunnel of rubble and it seemed like there was a, a, a little bit more light in there as well and, and I'm not, I'm religious but I'm not super religious but it just this tunnel sort of opened up a little bit so shot down this, this tunnel. Bloodied and broken, survivors are stumbling to the back of the club. They're confronted by 10-foot walls and a crowd crush is forming as people are desperately trying to clamber their way out. And in front of me there was some girls and they just couldn't get over it. And then people were pushing from behind. Uh, I screamed out, stop pushing, to everyone around it. These girls, these only tiny little girls, and they were trying to get over and pull themselves up and I was grabbing each of them underneath and just going didn't care how they landed. At this point you could actually hear the hear the flames as well coming. So you knew there was a, a bit of a change in in what people were feeling and how and the panic around and and all that. And again, whether by luck or whatever, there's all these milk crates or bintang crates or whatever they were had flown in the corner and it made this step right from the bottom to the roof and I just, I looked at Cal 
And I said to him, mate, there's only going to be one chance for all of us, and if you stop, this whole thing will go. They make it to the top, and at first, it's a relief. He's up, I'm up, other people are also coming up around. He's sitting on this wall about, you know, 50 centimetres wide, really high. You can see people walking around walls and roofs right around. But behind them is now a raging inferno and the walls they're on, well, they're heating up. Those still desperately trying to climb up are actually suffering worse burn injuries now from the white-hot walls than they did from the initial bomb blasts. And for Simon and Cal, there's fresh horror. So you imagine the, the walls at this point, they were hot, all right? Super hot. I was sitting on top of that wall and my ear was burning. And that's when we had to jump because I know, not saying I would have melted, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? Think my skin was definitely coming apart. I remember the next bit was trying to get down from this height without, and uh, something had stuck in my mind all the time where I looked down to this wall with about a three metre drop maybe, and it looked like someone had fallen and they were sort of odd crinkly and looked to me that they had died. They'd fallen off and, and cracked their neck or something along those lines. Some will die jumping off the wall. But again, Simon stays calm and his kids back home come into his thoughts. Having young children, all right, in Spider-Man suits, uh, we've got to do the Spider-Man. We've actually got to jump and slide down rather than do that. So that's what we did. He went first, I went second, and then we uh, just sprinted away from the Sarah Club. Out on the streets, it's madness. And while many are understandably running away, Eric is racing back to the Sari Club. I must have been about the only one guy going that way because everyone else is coming this way in, in sheer panic and stuff like that. And as I get closer and closer to the end of Poppy's Lane, you know, there's more and more people and the lights lit up and there's flames everywhere and stuff like that. And I turn around into the main road and it's chaos. It is sheer chaos. There's people stumbling around, there's people walking out of, out of the Sari Club, stumbling, other people are trying to help them out of the Sari Club. This guy comes up to me, blonde haired guy, and he just throws a body in my arms and turns around and walks back into the Sari Club. And that kind of shook me out of my stupor. I'm like, okay, I ran across and I gave it to two girls who were standing by and I said, look after her, get her to the hospital. Um, and I turn around and start going in trying to find the boys. So yeah. you've gone into what is now on fire. The Surrey Club's on fire at this stage. The Surrey Club is on fire. Eric starts pulling more survivors out. The blast has thrown the roof back onto a main part of the Surrey Club and a group of women is trapped underneath it. And that's when I heard them cry and scream and trying to get someone to come and save them. And um, I looked at it, you know, and I was, I'm a pretty big bloke and you've got a ridge cap and it's burning and it's about a foot thick. So I had to um, decide if I could run across it and I knew I'd, I'd go straight through it. Um, 
So I had to turn around. I made the decision to turn around that I couldn't help the girls to turn around and try and find someone that I could help. Um, you know, and you make, you make decisions under difficult circumstances and you, it was the right decision. I know it was the right decision, but I've got to live with the consequences of that decision. I've got to live with the, the screams of the girls and the smell of people burning. And it took me a good six months before I could get that the taste out of my nose and out of my mouth. And when I came home, I used to wake up at three minutes past one every night. And reliving it vividly. Eric does help save many others, pulling them out the front. While at the back of the Sari Club, Simon and Cal make it out too, joining the walking wounded. And that's when they see the strangest thing. There's a young woman in a T-shirt shop. She had no clothes on, all right? The bomb had blown them all off. So she was really, really scared. So we grabbed, got a T-shirt, stuck it on her. Uh, she was a German girl. And uh, she was, yeah, she was super duper really scared and her boy, she thought her boyfriend was dead. Hearing what happened to them all on the night is one thing, but to live it is another entirely. I was there in Bali in 2002. I arrived 24 hours after the bombing to report for Network 10 and returned many times over the years. Now, 20 years later, I was there again. I went to the abandoned Sari Club site and reflected on my own journey. The blast ripped it apart, killing or badly injuring hundreds of Saturday night revellers. The chaos spilling out onto the streets. I did the lead story that night and was put on a plane to Bali and, and we arrived at the scene and uh, I just took my breath away. It was, I just couldn't fathom what had happened. The wreckage pile looked bigger than what the club looked. When the club was standing, it just looked huge, totally decimated. And uh, I remember seeing a hand, a lady's hand, and she had wedding rings on, and uh, it was shocking. It was just so shocking. You know, people thought it had been gas cylinders exploding. I think by that stage, uh, my first piece of camera I shot was saying the FBI was on its way because it was a year after September 11, and... Uh, the idea that this was a massive terrorist strike was already starting to, to brew. Also, by sheer coincidence that night, two off-duty Australian federal police officers were in the Sari Club. The hunt for the bombers would begin immediately. In the next episode of Shockwaves, the Bali bombings, the hunt for the bombers. I want to shot them... You would shoot them? Yes, sure. Shockwaves, the Bali bombings, is a co-production between Network 10 and Listener. Hosted, written, researched and produced by me, Ali Donaldson. Script editing by Jennifer Goggin and Jake Morecambe. Sound design and audio production by Dave Stein. Audio recorders, Owen Wynn, 
Ben Patrick, Nathan Hill, Jake Staunton and Carl Carousella. Ali Aitken is the Podcast Content Partnership Manager for Network 10. Melanie Withnall is Head of News and Information at Listener. If hearing this episode is distressing for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14.